0: Welcome to the SNC Shop Talk podcast. I'm your host Dorian Grenier and this is episode number 9. And today we're going to talk about human behavior, the art of coaching, the revolution of group fitness and some of the more recent trends in the fitness industry and much more. I'm super excited to have Dr. Pat Davidson on the show today. He's an exercise physiologist, author, consultant, traveling lecturer and strength and conditioning coach currently based out of Hype Gym in New York City. I was first exposed to Pat's work years ago through some articles I read on Rebel Performance, been stalking him online ever since, and over the last couple years, he's put out a tremendous amount of resources and content. His programs, Mass 1 and 2, Rethinking the Big Patterns, Countless Podcasts, and right now, The Power Hour at Hype Gym, where he's discussing a variety of topics surrounding health and fitness every Wednesday. And that's just to name a few. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Pat.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to, to ever be considered as, as a, a viable guest on, on a podcast. So I, I really want to thank you for that. And, you know, hopefully we can, we can get into some good stuff today that people enjoy listening to.
0: Perfect. Now, I'm well aware you've done this hundreds of times at this point, And I feel like people can listen to another one of your podcast episodes where you've talked in length about your background. But for our listeners, please give us a short cliff note version about yourself and who you are.
1: Sure. So, you know, you gave a pretty good intro there. Um, you know, I, I'm someone that has an academic background in strength and conditioning and, and exercise physiology. I have a master's degree in strength and conditioning and a PhD in exercise physiology. And and I would just say that both of those, like the reason that I got those degrees, was was largely like selfish pursuits. And that I was an athlete. Um, you know, I, I played baseball as a kid is my primary sport. And then, you know, after, after baseball had run its course, I got into mixed martial arts and, um, you know, I really enjoyed that sport from the perspective of like the way that you can manipulate your fitness and your nutrition to get to a body composition and, and a level of like strength, power, endurance that can really help you overcome your opponent. Um, you know, baseball is largely like a skill sport where it's almost like if you're naturally gifted, You'll, you'll tend to dominate forever. But with a sport like mixed martial arts, like, you know, even if you're naturally gifted, if the person that you're going against out has outworked you and is in much better, uh, shape than, than you are, you know, you could find yourself getting beaten by someone that, that has no business beating you. So there's a, you know, there's just more elements to it and more, more control over, over the outcome that, that you're, personally getting like doing to yourself in many ways. So I, I kind of fell in love with um with this pursuit of of manipulation of the body through training and nutrition, uh, through that sport. And and from there, like I, I was looking like, you know, how can I learn more information to just make myself the best possible athlete that I can become? And and it ultimately led me towards academia and once I got into studying exercise science and physical you know, performance-based science. I, I found that I fell in love with that as as a, an entity, and I really enjoyed reading and writing and and getting into uh, you know f- just further pursuits of, of you know human physiology. And I just kind of kept going with it, and and eventually I found myself um, you know having completed a PhD, and and then working for for the first six years of my career in um, in collegiate settings. Um, and, and really like after, after the the last year in the collegiate setting, I got an interesting job offer to move to New York city and be the director of a, uh, of training for, for a well-established gym. And, you know, it was just like, like financially it made sense. Uh, the kind of equipment I would have access to made sense. Everything made sense, uh, to make that move at that point in time. So I got to New York and and ultimately like that gym, which was trying to expand and turn into a new gym and, and that whole deal, it, it, it just sort of fell apart and fell through, which kind of left me as as like an independent contractor in New York City, which I've been for the last three years now. And and that's been kind of fun, quite honestly. Like I, I get to be my own boss. I make my own schedule. I train people when I want to. I can charge them what I want to. Uh, it, you know, if I want to have more free time to, to train or to be able to work on projects like books or, or presentations or things like that, I can, I have that freedom to be able to, to do that with my schedule. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty happy at this point in time with, with what I'm doing professionally. And, um, you know, like, like most of what I do, I, I try to think of, of systematic models that would be as all encompassing as possible. That can that can then be like utilized and manipulated so that people can can kind of whittle their way down to creating the most optimal design for an individual or a team that they're working with. So you know it's it, it's always hard to give these intros because it's like it, it opens possible rabbit holes of discussion that you could get into. But but I I'd say that's a that's a fair approximation of of what I'm up to these days.
0: I love it. All right. Well, uh, let's dive right in. We're gonna we're gonna explore a bunch of those rabbit holes you just mentioned. So first off, I believe in order to be a great coach in our industry, you have to understand human behavior and why people do what they do. So to kick us off, could you tell our listeners about the exercise revolution for group fitness that's happening at Hype Gym right now and why? First off, why it works and the thought process behind the concept.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, I've been, I've been thinking about, like,
0: I, I kind of came to this realization, uh,
1: when I was down here for the original project, uh, in New York City that, you know, there, ultimately, like, you can be, you can be financially successful in the fitness industry, uh, through a couple of methods, but probably the, the most likely, uh, way to earn substantial money is to, is to have a group fitness business that takes off and does really well. And, and I just think that as of right now, like, there's, there's kind of, there's some different factions that exist within the world of group fitness. And, and I would say that, like, one of those factions is, is CrossFit just as an, an entity by itself. Um, you know, and, and in, with CrossFit is sort of proven that people are willing to lift weights in a group setting, uh, do complicated movements that take some time to learn and, and, and master. And, and people are also willing to work really, really hard, uh, you know, because most of the rest of group fitness is is mostly like kind of low intent, like it's low load aerobic exercise. You know, it's kind of like, you have like all of your spin class type things, you have your boot camps, you have, um, you know, all kinds of, of crazy stuff that like in New York, there's like. A million different aerobic inspired group fitness things. Most of them are like modeled after like nightclubs, nightclub scenes where it's like dark and there's like strobe lights and like house music that's pumping. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, but that's, that's what it is. And those things do very well financially. But I think that the majority of people that attend group fitness are, are younger people. They're not typically like, uh, people that are like 50 plus they're going to be more like millennial generation people they're looking for community they're looking for um you know other people that they can become friends with or possibly form a relationship with or have a social group that that they can kind of bond with they're they're looking for their for a tribe in 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 some ways like humans are always looking for for a tribe that they can belong to that has some kind of a shared communal identity to it so I think that that's like a, a a very much a critical component to like what leads to to a group fitness success. And and like if I were going to be like kind of uh, sort of mapping out these group fitness things, I would say that there's kind of like potentially four quadrants that group fitness could belong to. And um, it's almost like a, you could mark it out like with one axis being uh, safety and the other axis being load. And so you could have one quadrant that's like low load, uh, low safety. You would have the one next to it being low load, high safety. And then you would have two other quadrants being high load, low safety and high load, high safety. And, and the way I look at it is most of the group fitness things that exist because there's still sort of like eighties and nineties aerobics classes. They're just done in more of like a nightclub setting with house music at this point. Like very little has actually changed from the exercise itself. It's just that it's been repackaged and modernized from the perspective of now you can sort of do the same crap that you used to do, but it's in the dark with a strobe light. Um, and it feels like, you know, everybody's on ecstasy together or something like that. <laughs> those things, those things generally live in low load, high safety like very few people are really going to get hurt in that kind of thing and like you could probably throw pilates class in that area as well and yoga and things like that as far as group fitness is concerned right. and, and and then there's probably some boot camp type things that live in low load low safety which is probably the worst quadrant to be in you know what i mean because it's probably the one that's less able to actually recom like have recom re- composition related factors happen with the body well at the same time just like from an orthopedic standpoint being a nightmare and like there's there's no risk mitigation and very little reward from it other than like you know the very basics of like well you're moving you're doing something that's better than nothing and you know like there's there's probably an aerobic benefit to it as well but but it's probably not going to change like your your musculoskeletal system to any appreciable degree or or really lead to like tremendous aesthetic changes and then kind of CrossFit lives probably in what we would call like a high load, low safety region where it might be by itself. I, there there might be some other things that are kind of approximating it at this point, but I would say that a, a large number of people really aren't prepared for the kinds of drills that they're going to get dropped on them in CrossFit. I think CrossFit is evolving and doing a somewhat better job of trying to give appropriate... like. Cause I would just say that like high complexity, high load drills done under a fatigue state is a bad idea from a Dangerous. safety s- standpoint. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of like, can we create something that lives in the high load, high safety group fitness experience, which is a really difficult kind of nut to crack in some ways? Like that's a, you know, if, as soon as you take a lot of people, and have them try to lift weights together, you're probably going to have a ton of disasters actually pop up. But, you know, I've I've really tried to go about doing some due diligence in terms of figuring out ways that you can actually accomplish this stuff. And for the most part, most of the answers that I get brought back to are that that I think Kaiser Equipment, which is, you know, a pneumatics-based resistance training line, is probably the easiest way to accomplish that. Uh, and, and like if you just kind of analyze the most common injuries that take place in a weight room, number one by miles and miles and miles is actually people dropping weights on their feet or their hands. Um, like that blows everything else away. So if I was to like, you know, just from the standpoint of like having a lot of people working with weights, just simply by stripping bars constantly and like changing the weights on the ends of bars or putting dumbbells away or things of that nature. As soon as that happens, the number of injuries that are going to take place goes through the roof uh, because people are going to drop weights. They're going to bounce. Uh, people will drop dumbbells off the rack. They'll hit them in the foot. You can have a lot of problems happen from that. I mean, I've just seen too many examples of people dropping weights on their feet and really horrible things happening from that where it's like i don't want that to happen under my watch and if i can prevent that in any way shape or form i i think it's a major accomplishment so so with most kaiser equipment they do have racks that kind of mix uh air pressure with with barbells and you can add uh iron resistance and plates and that kind of thing to them but for the most part like you can You're you're changing the weight with a push of a button that alters the amount of air that's present inside of a cylinder that a piston is going to move through that that really just it's changing the pressure which reflects itself as weight that you're going to feel while you're doing an exercise. But if I'm if I'm running group fitness, I I think that that's a really critical thing. Like if I'm doing some kind of a circuit training class and I've got uh, people going in almost a factory assembly line from station to station. I can change the weights very quickly and I can change the weights very safely. And, you know, with, there's a, there's a number of additional pieces with Kaiser. Uh, you know, you can move loads at high velocity without worrying about a lot of orthopedic things because you're unable to create a momentum phase while you're lifting it. So there's constant feedback on the muscles and joints. Um, which just from a proprioceptive standpoint is great in terms of, of just not leading to like, uh, you know, kind of odd eccentric or, or transitional period muscle actions that, that oftentimes cause muscle tendon unit disruption or, or injuries that happen kind of at the, the distal parts of, of, uh, muscles and the muscle belly. So, you know, there's, there's a ton of, of things going on, but, but the hype gym concept revolves around using, using Kaiser equipment. And and from the standpoint of safety is a big part. And from the standpoint of being able to actually present the user with live time data is the other piece. So what we've done is we're, we're working with a, a tech company uh, to create a an ability to link all the different Kaiser pieces to a central mainframe. Where you can essentially see your, your own workout being scored like in a scoreboard fashion, uh, while you're doing the workout. Uh, so, you know, if you're doing a group class, you can look up at the board and you can see that, that, you know, currently your, your power, your wattage output is at, you know, let's, let's make up an uh, imaginary number at 560 units and you're in first place and the second place person is at 545 units. And you know, the, the lowest place person is at 405 units. So, you know, while you're going through the workout, you can see, you know, how are you doing compared to everybody else that's doing this workout. Uh, in addition to that, we'll be able to save your data. Uh, you know, it'll link directly to your phone so that you would have it sent to you. And um, and then the next time that you do that same workout you can see how your score related to the previous time that you did it. So hopefully that it demonstrates improvement and progress. But but ultimately, it's kind of like it's the old saying, um, you know, what gets measured gets managed. And and when people actually start seeing the numerical expression of their work displayed directly in front of them, it's it's like the equivalent of having a report card in school in many ways. You know, it's like when you're a very young child, four years old, and maybe you're going to some like like preschool type of thing, you don't even get a report card. But once you get old enough and you're at the point where, where you get a report card, you know, all, all of a sudden every kid asks every other kid, hey, what, what did you get for your grade in math? You know, what did you get in science? You want to know where you stand relative to, to other people. And, right. and when, that, when that happens, it's incredibly motivating to try to move that score in the direction that you want it to go in. Um, so I, I, I really just, you know, from, from seeing the way that that equipment, cause it displays your power output for every single rep that you do. But when you change it to displaying your power output from the set and then each set added together as you're doing them, and then for the entire workout, that's a difference maker. And, you know, if we have like, you know, uh, displayed like on the wall at the end of every month, like hey, the the client of the month that had the greatest total amount of power expressed was this person and this is their number. You know, everybody sees that and they start to try to move towards that and they work harder or they come in more times a week or they try to do that extra little work to try to – it all comes down to the fact that like you will be rewarded for the effort that you put into your physical exertion. If you try harder – and you do things properly, you're going to see the results that come along for that. And you're also going to be motivated to do all the other things in your lifestyle that would help you in the pursuit of trying to improve that score. So I really do think it'll help people ultimately like figure out, like, hey, if I get consistent sleep, I start to improve in this score. If I eat three meals a day that are proper meals with real food, I start to see a change in my score. So I'm, I'm really after... Number one, having people do quality exercise. And, and when you have the variable be power, the power as a, a unit of, of mathematical expression is force times distance divided by time. If you move with more range of motion, you get rewarded. If you move and you, you drive the weight with greater velocity, you get rewarded. If you increase the load, you get rewarded. It's all this dopaminergic system concept of if like you're going to see the reward in the score, but the score is reflective of doing all the other little things properly to get you there. It's almost a systematic punishment and reward mechanism that people should intuitively figure out to be able to push that number farther and farther and farther. Um, And, and I'm, I'm excited to see ultimately where it goes, but I think conceptually If I could get people to work as hard or harder than they typically do in a CrossFit uh, type of a gym, because I would say that that people that actually go to CrossFit work harder on average than people that participate in probably every other fitness modality on the planet. If I can get you to work that hard and prevent you from getting yourself hurt in the process and potentially improving the status of your joints – and the, the structure of your body. I, I think that that will do a tremendous service for people that want to get the best results that they can from exercise, but have been kind of butting their head into a wall because they're getting misinformation or they're not following a, a reasonable program or whatever it is that's, that's holding the majority of people back on this planet from from getting the proper reward from the effort that they're trying to put in
0: wow yeah this is this was brilliant. I mean, there are so many things uh we could we could dig a little deeper, as you know, there's a brilliant guy named Robert Sapolsky, whose books and lectures I recommend to anyone I come across he's done some amazing work with bonobo chimps, other primates over the years, and one experimental design he references quite a bit in his talks it shows uh, how the mesolimbic and mesocortical dopamine system works. So there's a monkey sees a red light and he has to press a a lever or a button and then a door opens and he gets a grape, which is essentially the equivalent of like a Krispy Kreme donuts for human, right? So it's like, it's like cocaine. He goes, you know, the monkey goes crazy, Uh, but it's actually the anticipation of that reward. So whenever the light goes on and the pursuit of that now, what happens when you change up the system and you know press the button again and only for 50% of that time the the monkey actually receives a grape now what happens to dopamine levels they explode they go through the roof because what you've done is you've introduced a maybe in your coaching and how you kind of take adva- like how do you take advantage of that maybe in the training and the programming process to kind of take advantage of that dopamine system because i mean for us as humans, it surely still works and is relevant as can be seen by this ongoing mass experiment called Las Vegas where people go <laughs> and gamble all all year round, right? Yep, totally.
1: So I, I look at it as like, you know, anytime you're looking at habit formation, habit formation is just simply like uh, neurochemical dopamine 101. And what you want to create in the beginning is the simplistic kind of um, behavior reward sort of loop, you know, like stimulus response reward is, is what you want. And and you want the person to get rewarded over and over again in the beginning. I want you to be successful. I want you to get used to this feeling of success and power and control. And at a certain point, after you've gotten used to getting your reward consistently now I take the reward away. And then it's a very occasional sort of thing that you get your reward. But as you kind of alluded to there, what we see at that point from, from animal models is that w- at that stage is where dopamine levels go bananas. And, uh, and, and, and it really is what researchers would call the craving stage that the person has gotten to. And, and a lot of this stuff is, is very similar to like addiction based science. So in the beginning, when people start experimenting with alcohol or other mind altering drugs, you know, it's, it's a fairly consistent reward kind of thing for the most part. You know what I mean? It's like the first time you go out and you have alcohol, it's usually in a, a good social environment and it's like a, a night that most people can remember fondly. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, and like, you know, at, for the first few months or something like that you just keep having those sorts of really good experiences like you know maybe maybe you wake up in the next morning with a hangover or something like that but like you remember how fun it was you remember all that kind of stuff but at a certain point when people abuse these things for for long enough they they start to not really see any of the positives that go along with it you know maybe at that point like they're using alcohol in a way where like man like you're kind of a jerk when you drink, like nobody likes you at this point, like you become a braggart you're you're difficult like you're you know you're you're making a mess of yourself like you're embarrassing, all this kind of stuff um but the person got like a hint of it like maybe on the first drink or two like they got a hint of that those good feelings and then went all downhill so there was like a mixed reward punishment that kind of came along with it. But but they're chasing the dragon, sort of in like addiction science speak, and and they're willing to do more to try to get the same feeling. You know what I mean? Like it, that's really yeah. what it comes down to, and it's really not that different from the training process. You know, once someone like in the beginning for new people, you know they they do, they go through a basic workout. They come back, they do the same workout again three days later, and their numbers are substantially better. It's like And that happens for months and months and months in the beginning. It's like they just keep getting better and better and better, and the progress they're making is incredible. But at some point in time, they are going to hit their first plateau. And that plateau is the equivalent of kind of the Las Vegas slot machine or when the monkey doesn't get the grape or the addict doesn't get the same kind of response from the drug. And at that stage is when people start to do things like, well, maybe I need to do more of this thing. Maybe I need, you know, like that's the, that's the thought process is you're willing to try to do more. And sometimes you get the reward and other times the reward doesn't come as easily. Now you just don't want a situation where you never get the reward. You know, at a certain point people can kind of quit because it's like, well, this isn't fun anymore. I'm never getting better. I've, I've been, training for a year and my bench press hasn't changed by any amount of load at this point in time. Like this is, I'm going to just give it up. Like this isn't worth it. You know, there needs to be the glimmer of hope, but right. certainty of hope is not a great thing. Uh, so, so I think that's what really gets like when, when people become lifelong exercisers, it's probably because they got to that first plateau and they continued to push through that area and they occasionally see reward, and they begin to learn more and more and more about the process that ultimately leads them to potentially being able to more consistently get the reward of seeing progress in the future.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, now you've alluded to this earlier a bit, but nearly any nearly anybody working in S and C or the fitness industry you know, you've seen this, you've come across people that maybe they're, they're new to training, um, probably athletes to a lesser degree, uh, but they have a very misguided idea of how hard they're actually working during a training session. So what they consider to be like a nine out of 10 in terms of effort, maybe it's like a two out of 10 at best. So what can we do to kind of lower the perception of threat in the body that will enable us to train harder for longer? And how does it work?
1: You know that's a great question. I think that's kind of the million dollar question in many ways. And and look, like there are some people that that do not fit that model. You know what I mean? Like they will literally go to the point where they're like practically killing themselves every single time and you have to do kind of the opposite and sort of rein them back in. But I would say the majority of people that you're dealing with are are not that. They are the people that need to try harder. And and it's like so trying harder is, is always going to come down to your level of motivation. And, and, and like, I'm not using the word motivation from the perspective of like a rah, rah speech before somebody does something or, or anything like that. And a lot of times motivation is, is on the unconscious level. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, particularly from like a dopamine perspective, it's, it's, it's all like the degree to which you move or the velocity of movement or the, the, you know, the will, like the level of effort that you put into the movement is generally a, a below consciousness regulated phenomenon. And it's this internal weighing act that the brain is doing between, between the weight of the perceived reward for putting forth this effort and the perceived risk that's associated with that effort. And I would say that overall the, the human brain is a risk averse, uh, Like that's what it that's where the way that it swings and that makes sense from like a survival based perspective on an evolutionary um, lens type of a perspective because you want to avoid risk so that you don't die. Like it's just it just makes perfect sense like only an idiot would take unnecessary risk and and generally speaking their genetics are no longer around because they probably took uh, stupid risks and got wiped out. So you know, it's, it's always this case of like, well, what's the point of doing this? Like there's, there's really like, I don't understand the underlying reward that would cause me to want to try that hard. Like, that's a dangerous thing. Like, I'm not going to try to deadlift that weight. That's, that's idiotic. Like, you know, that could break my back or something like that. So to me, like the, the human is really this like storytelling ape. And, um, you know, I, I think that like, What we believe in are myths that we create through cultural phenomena. And, um, and, and people are, people have been willing to die for stories for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And, and what I need to do from the perspective of being a coach is to get you to understand a story that you feel is like connects with you on some level that uh, that causes you to have this unconscious level of, of, of feeling of motivation for why you need to do this physical act because you need to outbalance the risk on the other side with the perceived reward for doing this movement and putting that level of movement into it. So to me, what the storytelling comes down to is it like, you know, oftentimes that, uh you know, when I was teaching undergraduate courses, you know – um for for exercise physiology, for instance, like exercise phys 101, uh, you know, the, one of the first statements I would make would be that physiology is considered to be a descriptive science. You know, that's, that's the, the area that it's kind of packaged in from a scientific perspective, which means that I'm telling you a story about the way that your body works. I mean, that's, that's what description is. Like it's, it's, I'm trying to get you to understand I'm, and I'm giving you an explanation. Now I believe that my explanation is one that is supported by the scientific method, but it's still a story nonetheless. Like science is a philosophical uh, construct and, and all philosophy comes down to a perspective and a worldview. It's just that science attempts to be able to kind of like as close as possible, objectively test and determine that which is probably untrue and can be discarded so that we have more likely explanations that are a closer approximation to the ultimate truth, which we may never be able to unearth. But if I explain to you the scientific phenomena of the way that we manipulate your physiology through specific kinds of physical work and the outcomes that are derived from that, I feel as though that's my best story to be able to drive humans to actually work hard enough to the point where they're, because nobody's going to want to lift weights that are challenging. People aren't going to want to lift those kinds of weights to the point where they're close to or at the brink of failure. You know, they're not going to want to do that over and over and over again. They're going to throw up all these kind of inhibitory mechanisms, whether they be you know, uh, Golgi tendon organs or their mind. And, and it's like I'm trying to override those things in most people. And I had tremendous success coaching teams of, of kids that were competitive lifters, largely because I also had those same students in the classroom. And they mm-hmm. would have me for like four hours a day teaching them the science of, of exercise physiology and strength and conditioning and program design. And, and all of those factors. And then at, at night we would be in the weight room all working on the same program and they would begin to, as the semester and the years would go along, be like, oh my God, that's why we're doing things that way. You know, they would have those kinds of moments. And as soon as they had more and more of those moments, you would see the way that the doors would unlock and the levels of effort would change and the results would pile up. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to do that with general population people. You have to come up with these shorter, more simplistic stories that you get them to buy into, but humans have been buying into short, simplistic stories that have been fairly inaccurate for a long time. But it's, it's the belief in the story that you're selling that will most likely drive the, the unconscious perception That this is the secret strategy towards moving towards the thing that I desperately want more than anything else in life that I think is really the key to being able to get those people to shift what they think is like their their ultimate level of work. Because as you said, it's usually probably closer to somewhere around a 2 to a 4 out of 10 as opposed to a 9 or a 10 out of 10.
0: Right. This is like right in line with what I had as my next as my next uh, question, so it kind of fits right into the whole storytelling bit. And essentially, how do you get general population, or maybe maybe they're not athletes, they don't really care about knowing the ins and out of how the body works and whatever? You know, they just want to get jacked. And how do you get them to, as Mike Isretel would say, embracing the suck and moving into a better direction on the kind of fuckery to results spectrum?
1: So, you know, in the beginning, I think that most people are just chasing sensory experiences. And, and that's, it's, it's an odd thing, but like, I don't know what kind of sensory experience most people are looking for. But it's, they, I think they're, I think a lot of people are looking to feel this, this, like, like a sense of like striving and working hard in some ways. Like, whatever that means. And I, I think that for most, uh, most people that are not like exercise aficionados, like their perception of what quality exercise is usually revolves around something having to do with a heart rate response. You know, so, yeah. And, and so in the beginning for, for most people, I do a lot of aerobic challenging stuff where their heart rate's up and like, and and the other reason I do that is is that it's very easy for them to see their, their, their numerical results change quickly. Because the aerobic system is just capable of so much possible adaptation. You know, it's it's like uh like if we do a very like I, I have these just simple, very aerobic sorts of protocols that I do with people that, that usually involve like, you know, either like a an assault bike and some some calisthenics and a treadmill or something like that. And, and it usually takes somewhere between like 25 and 40 minutes to get through these kinds of things. But people, people on day one, maybe they're at 45 minutes. And the next time we do that same workout, they'll oftentimes see themselves at like 39 minutes, 38 minutes. And it's like, Hey, Mm -hmm. look at that. You just, you just improved by like six minutes over the last time you did it. And they're like, Holy cow, that's pretty good. Uh, and, and people love seeing themselves get better at things. So I, I try to pick things that I know that people are going to get better at very quickly. So I, you know, like slow speed strength, you know, like, like your basics, like bench press, squat, uh, deadlift, you know, I just, I keep everything within a range of motion that I think most people's bodies are capable of doing to, to the best degree that they can. And, um, and usually like if we just train quasi consistently, you're going to see those big basic strength numbers change, particularly for untrained people. And, and then I also do aerobic stuff with them and i just do those things kind of simultaneously in the beginning and then they see like wow like my numbers are really changing like they just need to witness something going in the right direction that's that's undeniable and fairly substantial and and at that point like people begin to have a level of trust in you and and it and then it's kind of like we can move this program more and more towards the recipe that will lead to body composition changes that most people are looking for, which for the average person is like, I need like fairly, you know, minimal amounts of aerobic stuff. Like I just need you to kind of walk and accumulate like at least 8,000 steps a day. And from there, we're probably going to fall like generally like hypertrophy oriented, like bodybuilding style resistance training. And if we can do that and simultaneously get you on a reasonable diet, then you're going to probably see 99% of the results that they're after. So it's, it's not like this complicated thing, but, but most people, I don't know what, like, like, especially in New York, I don't know what, what kind of crack they're smoking or something, but they, they just think that they like there, it has to be like these programs have to be so elaborate and crazy. And like, we have to like be flipping you upside down and doing handstand walking and like, like, aerial yoga and and all this stuff and it's like man like you know like you're you're like a 45 year old man that like you need to just kind of do basic lifting you know walk and move and then like eat eat real food like you know like it's it's really basic shit that's not that exciting and and just be like very consistent about it And, and if we can do this and progressively move you in the right direction so that your numbers are, are just, you know, which should improve for, for quite a while for most beginners, then, then everything that you're looking for is gonna happen. But nobody, it's like, pretty much everybody's almost on the same program, ultimately. Um, we're, we're very similar animals. We're, we're pretty homogeneous in, in, in terms of our, our shape and structure and that kind of deal. And, and also the recipe of what leads to, like, you know, uh, acquisition of muscle and, and loss of fat. Uh, so it's like everybody kind of wants to feel as though they're, they're like this individual special snowflake when in fact, like most people need the same kind of stuff. Um, but they don't want to believe that story or think that that's the approach, but that's, that's kind of what, what I do on a, a daily basis with new people. And, and what I continue to do with people that have been with me for a while is, is, and they go from that spectrum of fuckery to like normal training of, of consistent high level work of appropriate range, like appropriate biomechanics of basic lifts that are done in rep ranges and set ranges that correspond with what we know about kind of hypertrophy oriented changes. So I'm just, I'm still kind of looking at like most muscle groups needing somewhere between 10 and 20 sets a week. And, and most of those sets, probably are like, you know, zero to three repetitions in reserve at the end of the set. And, um, and then, you know, we figure out how many calories maintain them. And if their goal is to gain mass, then we increase those calories by about 250 to 500 a day. And if their goal is to lose fat, then, you know, we, we, we go in the opposite direction. So it's, it's the same shit that everybody that's ever gotten results has ever done in the history of exercise.
0: Yeah, it's funny, hey. The basics seem to work consistently. No, I love that. So, you've 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 just touched on it. I can only imagine the types of people that you probably come across in New York City. Would you mind giving us like an instance on how you handle some of your mo- more difficult clients um when it yeah. comes to the different personalities you're dealing with?
1: For sure. And I'll tell you about the ways that I've screwed up, you know, and and how I've, you know, I try to avoid those things now at this point in time, after learning some, some lessons, like I would say that you kind of have like this, this category of like female clients that are terrified of like bulking up by lifting weights. And, um, you know, like they're, they're, they're going to exist forever. And like, they're very like emotionally, uh, like in a stranglehold with that, like, and, and like no amount of logic or reason or scientific presentation is going to change their opinion on that. Um, like it, it just, I really don't think it it ever will. Um, but they do need people to work with them that can help them and, and give them something reasonable to do and, and progress them in, in, in good ways. But you know, it's, it's always the same thing. I don't want to lift weights because I don't want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't (laughs) want to bulk up. I don't want to, I want long lean muscles. I want like dancer body, whatever it is. And I go, Oh, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, you know, like one of my goals is like, you know, I'm trying to get taller and I'm looking for length and I want my arms and legs to be much longer as well. So, you know, I've noticed that basketball players tend to have shorter torsos and very long arms and legs, and they're usually really tall. So I've been on this basketball program for the last three months. And, um, you know, I try to spend as much time around basketball players as I can. I play as much basketball as I can. And I think it might be starting to work. Like, I mean, I'm still five foot six and I still weigh 230 pounds, um, with like a five foot three inch wingspan. But I really think that if I just stick to this, that I'm going to get taller and have a basketball body. And, um, you know, so it's like, and, and they, they like have this realization, like, oh, this guy's an asshole and he's <laughs> totally right. Like, you know, I can't, like, this guy's not going to get taller and longer by playing basketball like basketball players are end up in basketball because they're tall and long. Um, but you know, all, all I ever did was like alienate these people. So it's, it's kind of like, I never disagree with that population anymore. And in the beginning, it's kind of like, yeah, I'll just like stand next to you as you do the elliptical. Um, and you know, we'll do abs and we'll do like these tiny little glute exercises and we'll get zero results. And, and that's fine. Like, cause like, you know, somebody else can, could make that money and it wouldn't be me. And, and over time, like maybe I can, I can sneak something in there. Like maybe I notice that for whatever reason, this person is willing to accept like a kettlebell deadlift because they feel their glutes work and Mm. they're like, okay, well, yeah, I've actually kind of noticed like this has gotten some change from that. it's like, oh, cool. Like, you know, maybe we'll try this other thing. And like surreptitiously, like under the, underneath the scenes, like you slowly move them away from, again, it's that fuckery to training spectrum. They're like so deep into fuckery that it's like, you know, you're dealing with this like completely different species over here and, (laughs) and like, you just have to like work with them. It's, it's like trying to deal with a child or something. You know what I mean? Like you can act really smart and sarcastic with a child. And that's a great way to make that child have a complex and a big problem. You know, like what you should do is understand, like, this is a kid. Like, they have no control over this. Like, I'm not gonna. I'm just going to, like, make them happy and smile and get them comfortable with me. And maybe it'll take a couple months. But if I keep showing up and being, like, a normal person and, mm. like, and show that I care about them, over time, they're going to trust me more and more and more. And they might come out of their shell a little bit and they might try a couple of new things. And if we try these new things and we get results, then we can try a couple more things. So I, I really found to like, you know, like it. it's I, I think like in some ways being married has helped. Like, uh, you know, just because you win a fight intellectually doesn't mean you get what you want. Right. I mean, often, Oftentimes it just causes the exact opposite oh, to so. happen. So, like, I don't care about trying to, like, look smart for clients anymore or win these fights. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I just had this argument with a client this morning about acupuncture. You know, mm. there's always something that comes up where it's like, you know, and I was trying to tell him about, like, sham shoulder surgeries and how, like, he's, and he just, he was, like, getting pissed. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's just change the topic. Like, I could send you scientific studies but it's, 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 this is pointless. Like, this is like, you know, arguing with my wife about the garbage or something like that.
0: (laughs) Uh, I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, I think you're right on the money there. And, um, that's a great lesson too. Yeah. I've, I've, and just to, just to go back to that basketball example, I actually had a mom, um, put her two kids into basketball because for that exact reason, because she, she <laughs> thought it was going to make them taller. So, there are people like that as well. It's
1: so crazy. Just an FYI. That's amazing.
0: Anyways, where do you see the importance of like tribe or group when it comes to attaining fitness goals? And how do you take advantage of that of group dynamics during training? Let's say you have a bunch of different kind of personalities. Do you look, how do they... Fit together, or do you just let it happen organically? I guess whenever you're working with groups, what's the best way you go about that
1: that's a that's a great question man um, you know it's, it's like like group dynamics is like a whole entity into itself and it's it's funny like having like taught a number of classes where like people are forced to be in this class together, and like sometimes it's like you see the the roster or the roll call. And you can, like, recognize some of the names. You're going to be like, oh, this is going to be a really cool blend. And then you get in there, and it just doesn't work for whatever reason. Like, the collection of people changes everything. And, and you know, it's kind of like that, like, in general. Like, you just – like, even if you, you've got a group of friends and, like, you, this one person joins the group, and they can change everything, either mm-hmm. in a good direction or a bad direction. Um So it's it's really, like – Human group dynamics, like, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, thought processes that the entire reason that our brains are so big is that they exist to be able to try to solve this, this social interaction puzzle that we're presented with. And, like, if you think about, like, what's the hardest thing about childhood and adolescence? You're trying to figure out the way that other people are, are going. Like, you're trying to solve other humans and, and mm. you're trying to solve other humans in groups. And you're trying to navigate this and kind of move your way up the hierarchy. Like we're, as, as tribal animals, like every single one of us is well aware of our status within the different groups that we belong to, you know? And, and like you could be the CEO of a company, but you're like the last man out on the team softball, like like the softball team. Like everybody knows that you suck and you have to play right field and you bat last and like nobody likes you in that scenario. Uh, versus the janitor is the the best guy on the team and he's the star of the show in that dynamic and so it's you know it's so context specific um and and you just almost never know how a group is going to come again together and form its own identity but i would say that there are probably a couple of things that we can take advantage of that are fairly universal humans love to create us versus them scenarios and if you can create a common enemy, you will absolutely bring that group of people together much, much, much more effectively. Now, oftentimes, like the boss is a great person to be a common enemy. <laughs> so, you know, the for coach? me, 100%, you know, so the easiest way to bring a team together, I think, is for the coach to be a quasi enemy. Like you don't want to necessarily be everybody's friend like you have to almost create this situation sometimes now if you have an external enemy that we can all agree is who we're working to try to beat fine job is done you know but if you can't find it you might have to become it yourself and you might have to do that with the full knowledge that everybody's going to hate you but if you want to get results and bring a group together and that's your goal, maybe that's what you have to do. So I think that the us versus them concept is something that's, that's really important. And the other thing is you have to give people something to struggle against collectively. Mm. So if things can't be too easy. I think that oftentimes like group dynamics get really murky and ugly when everything is too easy. Like, so with exercise, it's very, it's relatively easy to kind of weed that out. Like if you, if you make something that's challenging and you have stakes on the line, that's a great way to bring people together. You know, I, like in in some ways, as we, as we start our thing at hype, like we're, we're thinking about kind of merging the worlds of gambling and exercise together with almost like, um, you know, group, group workouts where you put money down. And winner takes all. You know, like everybody in the group Oh my god. (laughs) Everybody in the group has to throw down twenty bucks, fifty bucks, something like that. And if you if you lose to the other team, the other team takes your money.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's that's golden right there. (laughs) Damn. I've
1: been trying to figure out how to merge slightly competitive group exercise with gambling for a while. And I wanna I wanna keep that going as long as I can. Because, hey, like, I, I do think that there's a lot to learn from Las Vegas, and people love to gamble. Oh, you know? yeah. Other primates like to gamble, too. It's really, it's really probably beyond just uh, our species at that point.
0: Damn. Yeah. No, totally agreed. Um, this has been awesome. So just a few more things, and we're going to wrap up because I want to be mindful of your time as well. Sure. Um, First, I'd like to give a big shout out to Ben House, who consistently amazes me with his Facebook posts and the other content he's producing. Now, you've recently been at his retreat in Costa Rica with a bunch of other health and fitness professionals. Uh, Could you share two or three gems with us that you kind of took away from that experience recently?
1: Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, at that particular one, like Ben didn't really do much of the talking. You know what I mean? He was he's just kind of running the facility at that point. Yeah. And and providing it as a venue for for other speakers, <clears throat> and the other speakers were you know myself. It was uh, Seth Oberst, Zach Couples, Lucy Hendricks, and and Ryan Lecure. Uh, and you know, so it was it was really great in terms of just like you know getting a lot of the biomechanics stuff from people like myself, Zach, and Lucy. Uh, Ryan was sharing a ton of information on like nutritional side of things when it comes to like, what's really going on with like, um, you know, dieting and like fat loss, you know, what's, you know, in terms of like trying not to lose muscle, losing fat. And then if you're regaining weight, like what's, what's taking place there and really using a lot of like natural bodybuilding, um, and, and research that kind of is, is as close to that as possible to be able to tease out some of those details. And, and Seth is just kind of this like unbelievable master of, of sort of like the, the psychological elements that correspond with, with our bodies and what we're, how we're kind of merging our, our emotional systems and our, our physical state as, as kind of one thing. And, you know, I don't know if, if people have read like the, the body keeps the score. It's a good like introductory type of book to, to some of the things that Seth does. Um, and, and you know, like, I think that like to bring it back to Ben specifically, because even though he wasn't a speaker, he provides the venue for these things. And what one of his, you know, primary missions is that he's trying to demonstrate to people in this field that, you know, we can be doing all of this stuff around the periphery. We can try to be implementing training. We can be trying to implement uh, nutritional changes the biggest rock or, or at least the the easiest way to accomplish most of the things that we're trying to change is through changing the environment. And that's what he's doing. He's taking you out of traditional Western culture and, you know, living in, in either like a suburban or, or urban kind of environment. Um, and he's taking you and he's bringing you to a mountain in the middle of a rainforest. Where you get kind of dropped off and and now there's like very little to do in some ways, like there's no t v there's you know there's other humans, there's a weight room, and we're going to have like you know meditation in the morning, group breakfast we can we're going to have um meditation, breakfast, education, training. now we can have an excursion of like going to the beach or a hike or something like that. We're going to come back. You can have a little bit of time to relax. We're going to have dinner, meditation, and then you can have, you know, you can have your, your night free after that. But, but what it does is like, you know, there's, there's not all of this peripheral stuff going on. You're just kind of with other humans for, for the whole day and you're being social with them and you're creating these, these actual groups and, and that whole deal. And, and you end up talking to people probably more than you usually do as compared to like, I don't know, seeing people at work and then getting distracted by your phone or your computer or whatever you engage with other people and you you kind of feel the way that that works. And, you know, you're going to eat food that was grown locally and and sourced locally in that place that was prepared by a chef on site who, who makes it in a a manner where, where, you know, it's not deep fried and, and covered with like, you know, so much oil that it's drowned and that kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. So by the end of this week you typically feel pretty amazing. You know, you've been smiling the whole time. You've been sharing time with other people that value fitness and health and nutrition and and then you kind of get sent back to wherever it is that you live. You get dropped back into your regular world. And and you you're kind of now he almost like screws you in some way. You you're stuck with this realization like Wow. Same. That's the way yeah. that life, life can kind of be in some ways. And, um, and I know that like what he wants is to, for people to, to begin to create their own, their own versions of that wherever they are, you know? And, and, and in many ways, that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. Like, like we try to have a, a really good community at this gym and, and we have a lot of people trained together and we joke around and we smile and we have fun. And it's like, this is the way that life can be. It doesn't have to be this, like, this rat race uh, of, of being in a cubicle all day and, and like not having a mission or a purpose. Like, so, so I think that, like, what Ben is doing is unique because so many people are sharing this information in books or podcasts or at seminars, but he's literally dragging you into it and making you live it for a period of time so that you actually have to acknowledge it as something that you've experienced. And, um, and, and also just like, you know, the way that he is as a person and the way that, you know, he, he did some introductory type talks, you know, he's, he's just, um, he's unlike anybody I've ever met. And, uh, and I, I'm just, I feel very privileged to know him. And, and I love that the guy's always ready to do the next thing. You know what I mean? His, he, he lives this stuff to the highest degree of anybody that I know and it's it's always kind of like, you know, maybe he'll hit me up and he's got like this idea for some crazy thing to do. Or I'll do it in the reverse order and it's kind of like, you know, he'll he never says no. It's always like, yeah, let's do it. Let's make this happen. Let's find a way. And um and I love that about him. So, you know, it's just like, that's my boy. Like I I really just I hope that everybody follows that guy. Because he'll share more free high quality stuff through social media than anybody else I'm aware of, um, and and not just nutrition I mean like thoughtful stuff about like about people in general, yeah. about you know individuals as as you can kind of like perceive the world and you know I, I think that he's a he's a unique individual who's who's doing a tremendous amount that can benefit a lot of people.
0: That just sounds absolutely like the greatest time ever being on a retreat and actually living that experience, even if it's just for a couple of days. So I'm going to let you run here in a few seconds. If you got like five more minutes, what I'd like to do is just throw a few hot button topics at you, like a buzzword and have you ramble a bit. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, man, let's do it.
0: All right. Um, animal flow.
1: <laughs> um... <laughs> Well-intentioned people who value movement, uh, where I think the, the top people that are really good at it are, are, they have prerequisite movement capabilities that, that, where it's probably a great idea for them. And, and look, all movement is great for people to do, but some movement, like, oftentimes people are, are looking it's almost like uh, I, hear, I, I hear when people talk about doing handstands and the perceived benefits that they believe should go along with them. And oftentimes you'll hear people say things like, it'll improve my posture. It'll change. <laughs> it'll improve my proprioception. It'll improve my Olympic lifts. And it's like, well, I, I don't think it'll necessarily do any of those things. You'll probably get better at doing handstands as a result of doing handstands. But I don't think you're going to get this amazing carryover. You know, there are other sorts of biomechanical drills that are usually really simple and basic that involve control of the axial skeleton and, and, and owning positions that are much more prerequisite related that most people probably need to be able to do many of the animal flow movements that you see on videos properly and to really potentially have carryover and, and great benefit from that. So it's almost like, it's like having a kid that has a, a kindergarten-level math education try to solve for physics equations to build a nuclear bomb.:
0: <laughs> <laughs> OK, love it. Next one. Anything neuro-/training?
1: Um, probably like I think that, that, like, there's more like cheap marketing to try to sell products as being advanced and sophisticated that have zero basis in like anything that actually like we're, we're so bad at really understanding what's going on with the human brain amongst the highest level researchers whose only job is to try to research and figure this stuff out where they would probably be incredibly skeptical and like cautious about making any absolutist type statements about what the brain may or may not be doing. Whereas, pretty much everybody that markets themselves as neuro, you know, physiotherapy or neuro training or neuro anything. They have these incredibly simplistic stories that are very inaccurate about how they believe the brain is controlling uh everything downstream and how they're influencing the brain. And it it's just like it, it seems like it's it's like I don't know, it's it seems like a very pathetic attempt to use a buzzword to try to lure people in. And, and it, the, the likelihood that the product you're getting is going to, like, cause, like, you know, neuroplastic changes, uh, along anything that would be found in, like, Norman Deutsch's book. Like, it's, 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 it's not going to happen. It, it's like, uh, again, just something that's sort of like, uh, like, it's, it's just, it seems like people that are in way over their head that have no idea what they're talking about. And, and usually it, when it's a fitness related thing, it's like no fitness is actually happening. It's, it's all these like minutia related movements that aren't causing any biomechanical change that care, that have zero fitness enhancing benefit at the same time. So right. you're getting, it's like, it's like seven stones and no birds get hit, uh, sort of thing. <laughs>
0: fantastic um last one trigger point release
1: yeah i mean that's that's one where it's like um if you're telling me that you're doing trigger point release and that it is breaking up adhesions and removing scar tissue and unwinding fascia then i think you're an idiot if you're telling me that you're util- utilizing touch as a piece of sensory information that is being sent to the to the nervous system And leading to potential uh, changes in the output of the nervous system, I think that you're a reasonable human being and that you're probably using a tool to get to an outcome that we can both probably agree upon as a good outcome. But you're probably going to also be skeptical and say, well, the nervous system in many ways is kind of a black box and we send things into it and we get things out of it and we don't really fully understand. I try to use an N equals one sort of empirical process of tests, see what's limited. I use an intervention that I believe is appropriate for this person and I see what kind of an outcome I get from that intervention. And if I continue to see that the interventions are driving positive changes on my post measurements, I'll continue to pursue those same sorts of interventions. And for this particular person, when I utilize touch-based therapy in this particular area, I'm probably seeing some kind of a neurological change that I don't really understand. That's leading to an outcome that I believe is desirable and going to be helpful in the long run of this for this person.
0: Awesome! And uh, last but not least, let the people know what you got going on and where they can find out more about you.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, the the next things that I have coming up. Uh, I'm, this weekend, it's going to be a seminar with with myself, Mike Isretel, and Gabrielle Fundaro at uh, at Hype Gym in Union Square, in New York City. I'm really looking forward to that one. I, I think that um, you know, it's it's like Mike and Gabrielle seem like they're, uh, you know, two of the best in the business, and yeah. and just being able to be able to sit in on this this seminar for me is is going to be awesome. I'm sure that I'm, I'm going to get a tremendous amount out of both of those individuals and. Um, you know, I, I hope that, uh, that what I have is, is, you know, connects with people as well and and that it, it kind of has a good correspondence with what the other presenters are talking about. Uh, from there, like, uh, in, in June, I'm going to be debuting the second installment of rethinking the big patterns, uh, which I'm really excited about. I think that, I think that that seminar is one that I'm hoping leaves a, a pretty good mark on the industry. Um, I think that it's going to be an extremely useful seminar for coaches that are, are kind of aware of some of the biomechanical stuff that that I use, other people like Zach Couple uses, and like you know a lot of us kind of uh, really owe a big thanks to Bill Hartman for 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 mm. kind of introducing most of us to it, and, and for him still being kind of like the the grand poobah and the person that's really at the head of this this arrow point driving this thing forward. Um, cause I'll tell you like, he doesn't get enough credit and, and he is the man I would say, like, he's, he's kind of like the wizard of Oz. He's the guy behind the curtain at the yeah. end of all of these roads that, that is, is helping so many professionals like myself try to improve the way that people are moving and their ability for people to continue to train, get the right responses. Um, so it's, you know, uh, rethinking the big patterns, a, a lot of biomechanics inspired from Bill. Uh, my way of trying to organize and package training into the the most logical categorical design that it can be and um, and also with that particular one creating like the the best possible list of progressions and regressions where to start people with every kind of drill you can and it's it 's essentially like a cookbook for coaches um, you know start here do this next do this next like just just color between the numbers and follow the directions, and, and you'll probably get good responses. <clears throat> so that will start in, um, in Massachusetts at Pure Performance on June 8th and 9th. And then um, the next one will be with, with uh, Jim Ferris in Philadelphia on June 22nd and 23rd. I've got a third one in New Jersey with uh, Mike Baker at Bolt Performance on August 10th and 11th. And I'm trying to finalize one in Arizona um, in September. So, so those are the next things that are lined up for me.
0: Awesome. Online presence for you is drpatdavidson.com. Is that correct? That's correct. That'll
1: bring you to essentially everything that's under my name, uh, social media pages, books at Rebel Performance, every article and podcast that I've done.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and I'll try to make it down to New York City and link up in person to see for myself what's going on and what you guys are up to. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pat.